So our scripture today is only a portion of the story. The story in John 9 goes through verse 50 or something like that. It's a long one. And I've chosen this part, but we'll talk some about what comes after because I think that's important to the story. But hear these words that kind of set the stage for what we're talking about today. John 9, 1 through 12 reads, As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so the works, so God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made mud, with saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go and watch, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as the beggar began to ask, is, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. May God grant us understanding of these words today. So some of you that have been here the last several weeks will notice that kind of our, our worship center has been growing. You know, we started out with things for the miracle at Cana, the turning the water into wine. We added some, um, some water for the man being healed by the pool. Um, and also that would fit for the, the storm water, walking on the water last week. We have uh, a piece of bread, which is now very dry and hard, and some cans of tuna representing kind of the, the common person's lunch in the feeding of the 5,000. And, um, and so we've kind of built that. We have a storm. We have things. And then today I brought <laughs> some dirt. Now there there is some some stories about this, you understand that I have a reputation for killing houseplants. Because, see, you have to remember to water them. And so I, when I got out this morning, I went, darn, I didn't go out to the garden to get soil. I didn't really want to go out to the garden to get soil. So I began looking around in kind of our, we have an old farmhouse, so we have a mudroom. I looked in our mudroom and I found a deceased plant that I probably hid out there months ago, something that I tried to, to make grow, but it didn't grow. And there is where I got our soil. And I, and then I put it in the jar and brought it here. And then I got to thinking, you know, 
that the soil that would have been where Jesus was at that time would have been dry. It would have been not what we think of as healthy soil. So it makes sense that the soil is from an old plant that sat in my mudroom for months. Because I think often we try to make it all pretty. You know, I, I thought about I could go get some potting soil and that is dark and rich and moist. Or I could go out in my garden that's been fertilized and that would be dark and rich and moist. But, but then I, I think this is right. As we walk into this story, that's our backdrop. So prior to this passage, Jesus had been in the region of Judea where he was, um, had a reputation and his reputation had grown kind of beyond that of John the Baptist. And John was pretty popular, but Jesus' reputation had grown. People were following Jesus, looking for miracles, looking for healing, looking to hear him speak. And the more popular Jesus got, the more dangerous it was for this ordinary peasant from Galilee to get noticed by the Judean elites. So Jesus leaves that area. In the chapter before, Jesus had a confrontation with the Jewish officials about the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember that story? You know, she's caught in adultery, brought to Jesus. They're ready to stone her, and then Jesus makes his kind of famous saying is, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And they didn't stone her, but what happened was that kind of stirred up trouble in that area. So Jesus went traveling from Judea into South Galilee, um, traveling through Samaria up to Jerusalem. That's kind of the, the place that we, we see him going. Um, he and his disciples were walking in Jerusalem at the beginning of this passage when they happen upon a man blind from birth. We're not told how Jesus knew that he had been blind from birth. Um, the disciples raised the question whether the sin of the man or the sin of the parents were the cause of his blindness. And Jesus explained that sin had nothing to do with it, but it was an opportunity to manifest the power and glory of God. From there, we enter a most fascinating discussion between Jesus, the man, the disciples, the man's neighbor, his parents, and the religious officials. And that's a lot of that is in the, the further verses, although we get a taste of what he's up against in these passages. So one thing to understand is that in this culture, any illness, any disability was always connected to sin. That's how they saw life. If you had a problem, you sinned. And that had to do with, you know, how they were taught or what they learned and some of the, the things, the traditions that had come forward. And so while we might think that's kind of a really strange question for his disciples to ask, actually in that culture it wasn't. 
it was a question that, 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 that would have fit right into what they were trying to figure out about, about the world. I'm really sorry to say, though, that even in our enlightened world, some of that same thing plays out today. I mean, you only have to live in this world of, of COVID, the illness, and, and the last two years, and have heard echoes of that conversation. Years ago, a family friend um, some family friends went through a really, really difficult time. Their daughter and later their son were diagnosed with a, a rare form of an optic tumor. Um, and during that time, we had many discussions about this very thing. You know, why did this happen? Whose fault was it? There was a genetic component, but this was kind of a rare happening for two in a family to have this thing, or even one in a family to have this thing, and so it was rare. But there was a genetic connection, so there were the questions. Whose fault was it? The parents? <laughs> was it God? Was it something else? And we went through this whole time of struggle with them. Now I have to tell you kind of, we're gonna fast forward to the end of their, their story. These are two thriving, vibrant young adults today. The girl has a little bit of uh, vision loss, the boy has none. But at that time, that was a big deal and that question, why is this happening? Who can we blame? And it seems to me, as we look at this scripture, when the disciples ask that question and Jesus gives the answer that Jesus gives, I think it overthrows the idea that we need to find someone to blame when things go wrong, when stuff happens. We all know stuff happens. So an interesting side note about this scripture, though, is that blindness and sight are explicitly mentioned 24 times in the chapter's 41 verses, including the first and last ones. The details of the miracle itself is repeated four times. Jesus put mud on the eyes of the blind man, and he regained his sight four times. That tells me that there is something important for us to learn here. So let's kind of explore this story a little bit more this morning. There's some things to take note of about the story, kind of some background information that might help us a little bit to kind of grasp what's going on here. The story is linked to the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is the setting for chapters 7 and 8. So the previous two chapters, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or also called the Feast of Booths, is a week-long fall festival commemorating the 40-year journey in the wilderness. In fact, it was interesting to look up this feast and find out that even today, 
they'll pitch tents and go live in them for a while for this week to, to commemorate that journey. So there's that. It's connected to that feast. And then there's some symbolism also. The illumination of the temple was an important ceremony during that feast. Um, it involved lighting four gold, golden oil-filled lamps in the court of women. If you look at a picture of the temple, you can see where that is. These lamps were 75 feet high. Um, they were menorahs and candelabras that were lit in the temple at night to remind Israel of the pillar of fire that had led them in their wilderness journey. The light was so bright that it illuminated the whole city. Now, Jerusalem wasn't little. It was a bright light. The, cer the ceremony also um, held the reminder that God had promised to send light, a light to renew Israel's glory, to release them from bondage and restore their joy. This was the context for Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So think about that pillar of fire's connection to I am the light of the world. It's declaring Jesus as divine, I would think. The people knew that the promise of light was linked to the promise of a Messiah. This light that they lit during this feast illuminated Jerusalem, but at the end of the feast, it was put out until the next year. But Jesus is talking about a light that isn't extinguished, that's eternal. And so kind of wrapping your mind around that connection to I am the light of the world is pretty amazing. And then water was also a part of this ceremony, during the, the water part of the ceremony, the temple priests gathered a pitcher of water from this pool of Siloam and poured it on the altar inside the temple. The pouring out of the water expressed the hope for future rains to produce an abundant harvest. During this time, however, the people kind of had a feeling that, that they were living in a dry desert, that that there wasn't this spiritual awakening, that everything was kind of about rules and following those things. So this, wasn't, this feast wasn't just a cry for physical rain, but it was a cry for spiritual renewal. So we take that whole, whole backdrop and we remember other places where water is a part of the stories, particularly in this Gospel of John, we have the, the water turning into wine that was the best. We have water that healed. We also talk about living water. And for these people, the water represented a, a longing for living water. 
So underlying this discussion of light and sight and blindness is a question about who Jesus is. Is he the one that they're longing for? Is he the one they were desperate for? Was this the light of the world that would come and cast out the darkness? So the whole idea of light is a part of the story. And that isn't even talking about the sin piece. But we can't talk about this story without talking about what sin has to do with this story. You know, the question about who is sinful and what constitutes sin. And I am not uh, an expert in telling you what sin is, because that is not what we're here for today. However, this question about the disciples said of who, whose fault is it, or who, who sinned, him or his parents, I think plays into our lives today. Jesus res rejects the idea that either one is responsible, but that God's glory can happen in this healing. God's glory can come out of this situation. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes when we go through a really rocky patch where life is so hard that when we come to the other side, we can see God's hands in it. Not that God caused the situation, but that God was our help going through that time. And so when it's talking about the glory of God being seen in the healing of this person, I think that that's kind of what it means, that God's hand is in the healing of this person. And it sure starts something there. <laughs> it stirs up all kinds of things. So Jesus gives his followers a lesson in sin. It's not the blind man's. It's not his parents. God can be glorified. And then he goes into the business of healing this person, this man. And he takes dirt, dry old dirt, and he spits into it and he makes clay or whatever that would look like. And I don't want to think too hard of what it would, how much spit it would take to do that. I don't want to think about that. But he takes that, he puts this on the man's eyes. Now the man still can't see. And he tells him to go to the pool and to wash. And that's what he does. Still blind, going to the pool. I'm wondering if he had to have help to get there. I'm not sure. We're not told that. But he goes there, he washes, he can see. But then the trouble starts. Because then his neighbors could not believe that this was the same man. 
Some said he was, others said he only looked like the person. He assured him that he was the one. And they asked him how he happened to get his sight. And he explained what Jesus had done. And somehow I think those neighbors didn't like the answer because then they took him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees asked how he was healed. He explained again, and this divided the Pharisees and caused turmoil once again. Some said that whoever did this miracle could not be from God because he broke the Sabbath to do it. Others contended that a sinner could not do this miracle. So we have the kind of, you have to kind of picture this. Here's this poor man who's seeing for the first time ever. I think we missed that part. He's seeing for the first time ever. He's standing there and they're arguing as to whether the person who healed him was a sinner or not. Was authorized or not. And this goes on for a while. They're kind of, they're, they close themselves off to the, the realization that this was actually a gift. This was actually a miracle. And then their attitude hardens and darkens. And at the same time, this man begins to figure out who it is that that healed him. You see, he goes to the Pharisees and then he goes back to Jesus and he asks Jesus, you know, who, who are you? Isn't it interesting that he didn't know who Jesus was before then? He says, who are you? And Jesus tells him, And he comes back and says that he must, he tells the Pharisees that this man must have been a prophet. He's beginning to see. And it has nothing to do with his sight. Isn't that interesting? He's beginning to see and it has nothing to do with his sight. And the Pharisees who can see are beginning to show that they are blind. Interesting, interesting pendulum here. We have... The Pharisees on one end who can see but are blind, and we have the men on the other side who couldn't see but was blind and now can see. Isn't that a fascinating thing? And Jesus speaks to that. Jesus condemns the Pharisees whose sin, who sin remains because unlike the blind man who recognizes the grace of God in Jesus' gift of sight and light in his blindness, the Pharisees insist that they see and, and know everything already. They are closed to the gift. In fact, that close to the gift, they even drive this man out of the temple.
the gospel lesson doesn't end here. It's a vital shift that the marginalized blind man is healed, empowered to speak for himself. And Jesus presses that idea a little bit further. He says, I came into the world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that uh, those of us whose eyes work will become blind, but I think he's talking about a spiritual blindness. This man who had a physical blindness had a spiritual opening. The Pharisees who thought they could see everything actually were spiritually blind. Two very different things here. It's a reversal. Jesus is saying, not only do I come to give eyes to see and ears to hear, but I come to give blindness, or put the other way, to reveal. Not to give, but to reveal the blindness in others. Others who think they have their sight as perfect and their judgment is perfect. Makes me kind of shudder in my toes just a little bit. Especially those times when I'm feeling a little judgy. But we are reminded that in spite of our best intentions of being unbiased, our prejudices often affect our judgment. Will you agree with that? This blind beggar is shown as the one with keen sight and judgment about what and who is really important in life. And the metaphorical blindness of the religious leaders is unmasked. In this sense, Jesus seeks to proclaim not only recovery of sight to the blind, but also recognition of blindness in the seeing. The story is not just about a blind man being healed once upon a time in a land far, far away. It would be significant if it were just about the past, but it's even more important as it continues to teach us today. The story of healing 2,000 plus years ago continues to challenge us to recognize the ways in which we are blind and can't recognize that blindness and the ways in which we are wrong about the blindness of others. Ouch. Ouch. As Jesus said elsewhere, like in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? And I couldn't talk about this this passage, I couldn't put my mind around this passage without going back to that piece in another place. Because I think that we are really good at seeing specks and really bad at seeing logs. And I think this story is a log speck situation in all ways. 
But I don't want to leave us there because I don't know about you, I often like to pull kind of the gem out of the stories, the, the thing that inspires me. Because I think this story is fundamentally about grace. The blind man sums it up beautiful for all when he says, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. At the beginning of our gospel story today, the blind man lived in a state of social isolation, a, sto a place in the margins. He did. He was separated because he could not see those around him. The blind man was separated because he could not participate in everyday activities in the community. The blind man was separated because the people around him could not see the value of his life and that that value could add to their lives. Jesus' light of the world not only sees this man, but helps others see him as well. Jesus restores his sight, restores his place in community. For, for the others, more work is needed to restore their sight because they think they already see. The joy of this morning's text, however, is hope. There is hope in the case when we look at the story of, of John Newton, who was this, this horrible slave trader who then turned his life around and became a force to change the world. Quote from him, and we'll end this. John said, even though I don't know much else, I do know that I was blind, but now I see. And that is kind of the story behind Amazing Grace. My friends, this gift of sight is available to us as well. And I'm not talking about our physical sight. I'm talking about the eyes of our hearts. The eyes of our hearts can see the world in a very different way if the illumination we have is I am the light of the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? So go from this place today, imagining that pillar in front of you, illuminating all that you see. God, give us the gift of sight this day. Amen.